We've been in a series um, called A Growing Faith, and uh, the idea is that uh, we grow in our relationship with God as our faith grows, and that God wants us to have big faith because big faith leads to a deeper relationship with God. And uh, oftentimes when you hear people talk about faith, they use it in kind of a magical way, um, even kind of a a spell-like way, and uh, they talk about having lots of faith so God will do lots of stuff for you. And when I look through Scripture, that's not how I see the word faith being used. Uh, You see faith being used in this context of relationship. And so when we have great faith, we are saying that we have a great deep relationship with God. Many of us lost faith in Rahim Moore after that (laughs) pass that he let go over his head. And it's not magical. It's not, you know, if I have lots of faith in Raheem Moore, he would make that not happen again. Um, it just means that, you know, if the Broncos let him go, I wouldn't mind a whole lot. Okay? And so we use that, that, that word faith in that way often. But when we use it in terms of God and religion, we seem to use it in a very different manner, in a magical way. And what I've been trying to say throughout the last couple of weeks is faith isn't some magical thing. It's, it's about trust. It's about confidence. It's about relationship. You have to have faith within somebody to have relationship with them. And so last week we looked at practical teaching. It plays a role in helping grow our faith. And so when we are exposed to practical teaching and preaching, that helps us to see ourselves for who we are, see God for who he is, and see the gap there, see the difference, and and see what we need to do uh, to trust God more, to grow in faith more. And so practical teaching plays a huge role in growing our faith And today we're going to look at uh, providential relationships and the idea that uh, our relationships with other people play a role in growing our faith. But before we do that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This past week, baseball lost a couple of icons. Uh, If you're a baseball fan, I'm sure you know the name Earl Weaver. And Earl Weaver was the manager for the Baltimore Orioles, and he was their manager for 17 seasons. Uh, He was five foot six, and he loved to argue, especially with umpires. Earl Weaver was uh, notorious for uh, arguing with umpires. He would actually storm out of the dugout. He would spin his hat around backwards, and he would kick dirt into the umpire's face. He'd get nose-to-nose with these guys. And uh, he was known uh, for his fiery personality. He led the Baltimore Orioles to four World Series appearances, and he won one title with them. And then we lost Stan Musial, uh, Stan the man. Uh, He played 22 seasons with uh, the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, he was, by all accounts, just a gracious, wonderful human being, a good man. And he was an amazing ball player. And uh, he fell one season short 
of the guys who own the most seasons uh, in baseball. Carl Yastrzemski with the Boston Red Sox um, was one of them. He, he played 23 seasons. Um, and so uh, Stan died at the age of 92. And both these men, Earl Weaver and Stan Musial, uh, talked about their mentors. They talked about men who had made an impact on them. Stan Musial, the man who he named in his Hall of Fame speech in 1969, was a minor league pitcher, and his name was Greg Barbo. And Greg played a role in mentoring Stan and helping him become the man that he became. And it's interesting, as you look throughout sports, as you look throughout the world of politics, business, as you look throughout all these spheres of human existence and life, Everyone who is exceedingly successful, they, all of them, talk about people who have impacted them, played a role of helping them become who they've become. Warren Buffett, he points to a man who uh, wrote the book, the best book on investing that he'd ever read in his life. Michael Jordan, he points to his mentor and coach, Phil Jackson. Mother Teresa, she points to her mentor who was a Catholic father, a priest, and she would not have been able to do her ministry in India had it not been for this man. And all of these people point to somebody who had a profound influence, impact on their lives. We've all heard that joke, right? Look at a great man and you'll see a great woman standing behind him. And there's all of these ideas that we we are just not self-made, that there are people who play a role in shaping us and forming us into the people that we are. And nothing could be more true when it comes to spiritual matters. When it comes to our faith in God, our faith in Jesus Christ, I doubt you can think of a single person who has become a giant in the faith who didn't have somebody who spurred them on in their faith. It's interesting. You don't see lone rangers in Christianity. If you do, uh, they aren't very deep in their faith. In fact, it's a team sport. From the very beginning, Jesus Christ, the one person who could be a lone ranger in this, gathered around him 12 disciples. And not just uh, you know, random folks, but people that he was intentional in choosing. Each one of his disciples, he went up and he asked them to follow me. And inside of that group of 12, he had three who were even closer to him. There was three that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with him. There was three disciples that he especially poured into. Peter, James, and John. And Jesus, the one person who could be a lone ranger in his faith, he didn't. He surrounded himself with other people. Today, we're going to consider this idea of providential relationships and the role it plays in growing our faith. The idea of providential, um, as we were joking, the worship team before we came out uh, to lead this morning, we we spent some time praying, and usually we tell a bunch of jokes, but then we pray. And I said, I don't believe in luck. And in fact, the word potluck, I think we need to get rid of that. It should be pot uh, providence, pot providence, because before the foundation of the world, God knew what you were going to bring to church that day. (laughs) There's no luck about it. And 
luck is a idea that many of us have that, boy, I'm so lucky that I ran into the you. I'm so fortunate that our paths crossed. But luck has nothing to do with it. In fact, I would argue that uh, there is a God and he is orchestrating much of what's going on in this world. And he is bringing to you and across your path people that he wants to have a role of influence in your life. And not only that, he is bringing across your path people that he wants you to have an influence on their lives. You see, the bottom line, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, if you start zoning out, if you start going, man, this is boring, I'm ready for lunch, I'm ready for potluck, hear this. God uses relationships in our lives to influence our faith. Relationships play a huge role in forming our faith. Now, there's a tension here. It's a tension that must be managed. It can't be solved. In fact, if we were to solve this tension, there would be problems. Now, you live in Ray, Colorado. We live in the world. We live in a place that most of our culture is trying to steer us away from faith in God. Most of our surroundings, most everything that's going on around us is trying to undermine and to wear away at our faith in a loving heavenly father. And there are relationships in your life and in my life, people who are taking pot shots at faith in God. And the tension is that we want to remove ourselves from those types of influences. The tension is that we feel like, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be friends with this person because they're an atheist or they don't believe the same way I do or they don't have the same view I do or God forbid they're Lutheran, right? I, don't, I like all the Lutherans I've ever met, so that was just for fun. But we have this tension, and if we solve that tension, there's going to be problems. Because Jesus said that we are the light on a hill. We are the salt of the earth. Jesus said that we must play a role in, in influencing this world for good and for faith in God. And yet we have this tension. Because we all know people who, as Paul says about Onesimus, has shipwrecked his faith. We all know people who have shipwrecked their faith because they were spending too much time with folks who kind of took shots at God. And it just took too much of a toll on them. And they no longer follow Christ. They no longer believe. We all know folks like that. We've all perhaps experienced a season like that in our life. Perhaps you today are going through a season like that. You see, people influence our lives. And they can either act as a catalyst for faith or a detriment to faith. This is a tension that we live with. Just think if the church was just for churchy people. It only take a generation before it closes its doors. Because last I checked, kids aren't born as churchy people. I mean, just watch how they treat their siblings, right? Watch how they treat you sometimes. And it takes some, some, some formation, spiritual formation in all of us to become churchy people. And if the church were to just abandon the world, 
And to, as I say, navel gaze, if we all just showed up and didn't look at the world outside of these walls, but we just were our holy huddle to ourselves. The church would lose influence. And sadly, many churches have done this and they've lost relevance and they've lost influence in our culture. Why did they do that? Because of this tension. Because if we are too much like folks out in the world, then we will lose our faith. The other side of that tension is that you can become too worldly as a follower of Jesus. That you can lose your saltiness and your light, says Christ. That they can pull you out of being an influence for good and you can actually just tube on the whole thing. And so we have to maintain this tension somehow. The scriptures give us some guidance in this. Proverbs 13.20 is a great verse. And if you are looking for verses to memorize, and especially if you're a young person, it's a great verse to memorize. Walk with the wise and become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. Now, I've preached on this text before, but it is worth repeating. It is an excellent verse. The Proverbs were written by uh, many of them by King Solomon. And King Solomon wrote these words down to educate, to instruct his sons and the young men of Israel. And as parents, I mean, if you have kids, you read that verse and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to like tattoo that on my kid's face, you know, <laughs> so that they get up in the morning and they read it. Huh? Wise. And it's interesting. This verse has a promise and a warning in it. It has a promise and a warning. It says that if you hang out with wise people, what happens? You become wise. That's the promise. If you hang out with wise people, you become wise. I think that's partly why everybody who's ever amounted to anything can name mentors and wise people that played a role in helping develop them as an individual. Because they spent time with folks who were wiser than them and it rubs off and you become wise. It's a principle in this world. And Solomon wrote it down for us and put it in the Bible. It's a principle that you can either ignore to your detriment or leverage for your benefit. The second part is a warning. And aren't you glad the warning isn't if you hang out with fools, you become a fool? It's not the warning. It says the companion of fools suffers harm. It doesn't mean you are a fool if you're hanging out with fools. And you see the Bible maintaining that tension even in this passage. (coughs) Because we are salt and light. And so part of being salt and light is we're going to hang out with foolish people every once in a while. I mean, look at Jesus' whole mission. The God of the universe, wisest being, comes to earth. He couldn't help but hang out with a bunch of fools. (laughs) That's all that was available to him. Because everybody around was not as smart as him. Everybody here wasn't as wise as him. Everybody here, he was older than the oldest man on earth. He had more wisdom than everybody combined. And he could have chosen not to come. Jesus walked into that tension. And then we see that he suffered harm 
because of his association with fools. He suffered harm. Even this principle applied to God incarnate when Jesus was in the flesh on this earth. He suffered harm at the hands of fools. And if we associate with fools, eventually we will suffer harm. The best way to picture this is like a grenade. A fool is like a walking grenade. Eventually the pin gets pulled. Eventually it goes off. And if you're nearby, you'll suffer harm. If you're in the proximity of the blast radius of the fool's life going off, it'll hurt. You don't even have to be involved in what's going on. You don't even have to, you know, you just have to have some close proximity and the blast will get you. And and this is a warning. This is, this is just a principle. As parents, we understand this. We see this happen with our kids, don't we? Because none of us think we got a fool for a kid, right? I mean, if you do, I'll talk with you later. I mean, most of us think other people's kids are fools and not our own. And the problem with my kid is that they hung out with your kid who's a fool, see, right? And that's why bad stuff happened to my kid is this verse. My kid suffered harm because he's a companion of your kid. And so as parents, we start to take, you know, intentional steps to keep our kids away from other kids who we have deemed as fools. And we try to get them near kids who we have deemed as wise. We try to keep them away from people, not just kids, but adults who we have deemed as fools. And we try to get them around people that we think are wise. This principle doesn't just apply to children. It applies to everybody. Whether you're eight or 98, this applies to you. So that's one teaching that scripture has in regards to our relationships. And it's telling us that people have a profound impact on the quality and the direction of our lives. And people have a profound impact on how big our faith in God is. There's another verse that Paul the Apostle wrote in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. It says, bad, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. When I was a kid, we used to say bad company has good music, but they corrupt, bad, <laughs> corrupt good character. <laughs> if you don't know that one, I guess you don't know bad company. Um, and Paul is basically giving a spin on the same notion that who we spend time with, who we hang out with, has an influence on our life. And you can have good character. You can be a good person. You can have good morals, a good marriage, a good business practices. All these things can be good. But if you start hanging out with bad company, bad company corrupts a good marriage. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good business practices. Bad company corrupts good churches. (laughs) Bad company corrupts. It's what it does. It's a principle. There is no denying this principle. We deny it to our detriment. We leverage it to our advantage. These are pretty straightforward verses, so this is a pretty easy sermon, isn't it? You're like, I could have said this stuff. I mean, they just have to read these verses, and how hard is that? 
The hard part is in the living of it, isn't it? Because most of us can think of somebody either now presently or in the past where we're like, man, that was a fool or that is a fool or that's bad company. But for whatever reason, we continue in that relationship. And sometimes we continue in that relationship with good intentions. We're like, oh, I'm going to help them out. And I'm going to, you know, rescue them. I'm going to fix their life. I'm going to, you know, the only person that can fix their life and rescue them is Jesus Christ. And last I checked, you ain't him. And neither am I. Only Christ, only the gospel can rescue a fool and make bad company good character. Only Jesus. And so if you are in those relationships and you know it is taking a toll on you, on your good character, taking a toll and you are becoming less, or excuse me, you're being injured more by your association with them, perhaps it's time to stop. Perhaps it's time to be intentional. To find other folks to be around. Now, the flip side of this is also true. Some of you are great characters. Some of you are are wise people. And what God would want you to see in these verses is the influence, the impact you can have on other people. Sadly, in the Western church, not just ours, but across the board in the Western church, we are seeing we are seeing the, what they call the deminification of ministry. Now, what on earth is that? Deminification. That sounds really evil and bad. What we're seeing is that more and more and more churches are paying professional clergy to do this. And those clergy go off and get degrees. A demin, a doctorate of ministry. And so it's a play on words, the demonification of ministry. And more and more and more you see that the western church is happy to pay pros to do it. And this is not surprising at all because that's what all we do that's what we do in every other area of our culture. If we get a runny nose, we go pay a pro. If we have a tax issue, we go we pay a pro. If our kid starts troubling us, we go and we pay a pro to teach them. We go and we, we pay others to fix our issues. We pay others to do the work. The interesting thing with Christianity, with the gospel, is that it's not something that you can pay somebody else to do for you. You can't have a stand-in. You can't have a hired gun. It's not like that. It's not that... I'm going to stand in front of Jesus with everybody I ever was a pastor over behind me. And we're all going to say, yeah, and these people are all good. I'm vouching for all of them. It's not going to work that way. The scriptures are very clear. Each of us will stand before Jesus and give account for our lives, for every word that was spoken, for every opportunity that was missed, for every sin of omission, things that we should have done, but we didn't. Everyone We'll give account. And there is no proxy on that day. So my question for the Western church is, why would there be a proxy 
all the rest of the time. Why would we think we can just pay somebody or we can get that one person who volunteers for everything to take care of that and the rest of us are off the hook? Now, that might be how we see it. But let me suggest that we've been listening to the wrong people. We've been listening to our culture. We've been listening not to the voice of Jesus, not to the words of Scripture. We've been listening to our own deceptive hearts and to our deceptive culture. You see, Jesus would ask of you that you would be more intentional with your time, with your relationships. If you know Jesus Christ and you are one of those wise people and you are a person who has much to offer this church and much to offer people in this community, Jesus would ask of you to be more intentional, to be more available, to use more of your time and to leverage your relationships because your relationships influence people to have big faith in God. And you will give an account. One day, we all will give an account for how we spend our time. And I don't think, I was tired and I watched Biggest Loser, Jesus, is going to go over very well. And I'm guilty of that too. And you might think, ah, man, this is a mean, nasty sermon. I got to try harder. Okay, where's the sign-up sheet that makes its way around? I'll sign up for something. And again, It is not a try harder message because you can't grow faith by trying harder. You grow faith through the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you are a person who has great influence and great wisdom and you have all of this to offer, don't you think that you will be compelled? In fact, the way that the Apostle Paul puts it, we are hemmed in between a rock and a hard place and we would do anything else but this, but The love of Christ compels us. In other words, Paul is saying, man, if I could just build tents and mind my own business, I would do it. But Jesus' love, his grace in my life compels me to do this. So if you have to muster up a try harder attitude in this, we don't need your help and Jesus doesn't want your help. But if it's about love and sacrifice because Jesus loves you and sacrificed for you, now you're starting to get the picture of the team. Now you're starting to get the picture of how this thing works. You see, some of you aren't that intentional with these relationships because you just haven't fallen in love with Christ. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, was an Anglican priest. And he was not very good when he started, like most of us. He came across the ocean. He was in England, and he came across the ocean. He was going to take a pulpit in Georgia. And it didn't go very well. He was courting a young woman, and she married another guy. And uh, the people weren't listening to him very well, so he decided, I'm going to get on a boat, and I'm going to go back to, to England. And he had this experience on the boat where a storm came up, And they were afraid that the boat was going to sink. And John Wesley was fearful for his life. And on that ship, he saw a group of Moravian missionaries. And these Moravian missionaries, 
who were sent out from a community in Moravia. They were going all around the world to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these men and women were on the deck of the ship in, the, in just the, the full force of the storm. And they were singing songs of praise to God. And there was no fear in them. And John Wesley, at that moment, realized that he did not know Christ like the Moravians did. Well, he went back to England, and it led to a lot of soul-searching. And he was at a particular meeting one night when they were reading Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans, and he found his heart, as he puts it, strangely warmed about a quarter to nine that night. And he experienced the love and the grace of Jesus Christ for the first time. And this was a man who was a priest in the Anglican church. This was a man whose mother was a teacher of religion in the Sunday schools in England. This was a man whose father was a 50-year priest in the Anglican church. And he would tell you in his own words, you can read these yourself, that he did not know Christ until that night. And then he found a new found boldness, a new found compulsion to take the love of Christ to this world. And the rest is history. Out of Wesley and his methods, we got the Methodist church. And out of Wesley, we see this amazing movement of God. But it wasn't until he experienced Jesus Christ in a very real, profound way. When he experienced God's love for him and his grace for him, that's what compelled him to service. You see, some of us aren't as intentional as we should be. Some of us aren't doing what we know God would have us do because we just don't feel compelled. By God's love for us. So I ask you, which side of this tension are you on? And most likely we, we can identify uh, things on both sides of the tension for us. On the side of the tension that, that pushes your prone to wanderness. Are there relationships in your life that you are feeding, that you are spending time with them that are to your detriment? Are there relationships in your life, people who are causing your prone to wander heart to wander even more, to be more prone to wander, who are not encouraging faith in you, and you know that you're not doing much to influence them, that they have far more influence on you than you on them? And are there relationships in your life that you just need to step away from? And the other side of tension, are there those people that you just sense, God has brought this person into my life and I am bleeding for them because I see their marriage and it's falling apart because I see how their their finances are going and it's just breaking my heart. And what we usually do is I'm just going to pray for them. Because I'm not going to talk to them because it's none of my business, but I'm just going to pray for them. And are there some people in your life that you think God is compelling me to enter into an awkward discussion with them? You see, I believe God loves awkward. (laughs) Look at me, right? God blesses awkward conversations. 
And Jesus was the master of awkward. Jesus structured and created awkward conversations all the time. I mean, think about the woman at the well. Jesus is hanging out, hot day, thirsty. Woman comes. A Samaritan, a half-breed, a woman, all these strikes against her. A rabbi, a Jewish rabbi would never speak to this woman. And Jesus talks to her. And he says, go and bring your husband. (laughs) Innocent question, right? And the woman says, ah. Now you can start seeing the awkwardness. I I don't have a husband. And then Jesus says, yeah, you're right. In fact, you've had four husbands, and the man you now live with isn't your husband. Awkward. I mean, if you have an impression that Jesus is just a really nice guy who at the end of the day wants you to have a really nice day, you don't know Christ. Jesus is all about asking the awkward question that we don't like. And if we are to be Christ-like, because that's what ultimately God's goal is for our lives, to be Christ-like, there are going to be some awkward conversations in your life. And maybe on that other side of of the tension... (laughs) As I fall over dead, Jesus is wanting you to enter into some awkward conversations with people. Jesus is wanting you to make yourself more available and more intentional. Jesus might be asking you to step into some leadership in this church. Christ might be asking you. To be available. To work your wisdom for his kingdom. You see, the interesting thing with this principle is that no matter whether you want it to work against you or not, it's going to work. It's just out there. It's, it's what happens. It's like, it's like sowing and reaping. It just happens. But there's, there's things we can do to leverage the principle of sowing and reaping, aren't there? We call that farming. Farming is leveraging the principle of sowing and reaping to maximize the benefit of it. And you can do the same thing with all principles in scripture. You can leverage this principle that God uses relationships in this world to influence people for faith. You can leverage that principle for your betterment, for the betterment of those around you. You can leverage this principle. The question is, are you and will you? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have brought folks into our lives that each of us can point to and say, you know what, if it wasn't for them. I thank you for Doug Nunke, Dan Sadler, Mike Oliver, Jim Howie, Jim Dixon, Larry Renault, men who have shaped my life in profound ways who had awkward conversations with an awkward teenage boy who took time out of their schedules to notice me and to care about me, to love me, to see potential in me, to nurture that. I thank you that those men leveraged this principle in my life. Lord, I pray that someday there would be other young men and women who include our names in a prayer of thanksgiving. That if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be who I am today. And my faith would be smaller because of 
for lack of them. Lord, I pray that you'd grow big faith in us so that we can have a deep relationship with you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you listen to the Holy Spirit. Know how to respond. Be compelled by the love of Christ. Experience his grace in new ways. Amen.